Welcome to another In the Telling Scrapisode, segments that are too good to be left on the cutting room floor. This Scrapisode is part of a series of starter stories and shares how Anthony Buck became an opera and theater guy. No, it was the other way around. When I was a youngster, I really wanted to be uh, on the stage, and so I was always looking in the newspaper back when we had newspapers um, for <laughs> for audition notices. And I noticed that everyone was producing musicals, so I this thought, is, um, "This is awesome that you noticed this as a kid." <laughs> yeah, so I was like, "I guess I better learn something about singing." So uh, I started singing in my church choir when I was a soprano. Um, which I'm slightly still closer kind of than most still men a pro- to being soprano. soprano. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, uh, yeah, joined the church choir, started messing around with singing, started singing in high school. Um, but it really was all um, in the service of wanting to be on the stage. Do you find that um, you were right in that expectation that like music will be my way, my vehicle to get there? Or yeah. have you? I think that's true. I. It's strange that I consider myself a better actor than singer. Um, <laughs> I see your surprise face again. Like, what are you thinking? No. You're a terrible no. actor. <laughs> that, is, that is not a comment on your acting. That is a comment on your singing. Um, I, but I, th- I guess most people probably view me as, oh, that music guy. He's great to have around for the theater because he has so much musical training. Okay. So, yeah, I think that it it helps a lot um, in what I'm doing. And uh, whenever I see stage managers at the opera, they all have to read music, you know. And there are a lot of stage managers out there, but only so many of them who read music well. So, really complicated music. Yeah. So they're, they're standing in the wings cueing things um, because they know how to read a score, you know. And so the same has largely been true of me. I'm a very well-trained musician. So if ever you need someone in the theater who knows something about music, it's like, oh, good, good. He has skills. Yeah. Those little Venn diagrams, theater and music Mm -hmm. and advanced of both only overlap with so many people. Accurate. Accurate. Hashtag truth. (laughs) Um. In music, we don't call that a hashtag. We call it a sharp. Oh, oh. You know, I was kind of wondering about that. (laughs) Um, What what other storytelling hobbies do you have besides ones we've kind of touched on? You said you write, but you you differentiated that as a verb from composing and... um, the other awesome words you use that escaped me. Uh, oh, arranging. Arranging, yeah, arranging. composing and arranging. So uh, what else do you write? Uh, well, since you know, um, I <laughs> I have been... Oh, it's scary to admit it because people don't know this. I'm, yeah, well, you're the theater ninja and we're pulling you <laughs> into the light right now I'm, and exposing all your deeds. So um, I have written several plays, um, but I also right now am doing some writing of children's books. Exciting. So um, I wrote my first children's book over a decade ago and it's just now getting back out to see the light again because I went back through and redid all the illustrations on it now I'm trying to find some ways to get it published and things and so I'm working on another one and um and I'm doing the illustrations for those two um which drawing actually was my very first love it was the thing that I always did and I think that I did it largely in a storytelling way you didn't just draw you know stick house figure person it yeah that was never really the goal I in fact I really wanted to be a cartoonist 
oh. when I was a an even youngstery than when I was looking in the, <laughs> the paper for audition notices. That was my first career ambition was to be a cartoonist because it was a way to tell story. And um, I don't think that I realized that that it was possible to go out and tell story on the stage. In fact, I remember the very first time that uh, was revealed to me. I was sitting in um, my uh, elementary school cafetorium, as they call them, <laughs> uh, and people came from the high school to do scenes from the musical that they were doing. Oh, sure, like they do promotionally. Yeah. yeah. So they were doing Once Upon a Mattress, and uh, they came in and did some songs and scenes from it, and I was like... <gasps> Wow, this is amazing. This is a you live can tell story. stories, but you don't have to like sit alone in your room with your pencils and crayons. <laughs> you can do it like for people. And then the very first um more professional sort of thing I saw was uh the first production that the Grand Theater in Salt Lake ever did, which was Camelot. That was their very first that show. That was the very first one they ever did. Because a neighbor of mine was playing in the pit. He played the trombone. Okay. He's like, hey, you're weird. Maybe you'd like to come to the theater. And he was right on both counts. Um, so <laughs> um, I went to see Camelot. And it was, I remember everything about it. Pat Davis directed it. And, um, uh, uh, oh my goodness, where did his name go? Um, Robert Peterson. Was, oh wow! Uh, was Arthur? Of course, he's dead now. But um, Carol Anderson was Guinevere, and Jim Miller, who's still around singing, uh, was Lancelot, and um, Alan Lafleur, who's since retired from the stage but was a huge force at the time, was Mordred, and Neil Barth, who I did a million shows with later on, was Pelinor, and Glenn Slight was Merlin. I mean, I remember, and I remember what the sets looked like. I remember everything about it because that was like the moment that really changed my life and what I wanted to do and my friend who played in the pit um he said you know if you practice really hard maybe someday you can be up on that stage <laughs> <laughs> what have you done at the grand because you've been on that I, stage I yeah? a, it's been a long time since I've worked uh, a lot at the grand but in the early 2000s I did a lot of shows in fact when I uh, they were remodeling the theater and that's so they were doing some things in their outdoor amphitheater in the Redwood campus in Salt Lake Community College um, and so I did um, the Pirates of Penzance and the Mikado and uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers there. And then later on, I did uh, the Pajama Game and, uh, of course, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Because how could you not have yes, done that show? Because you've, you've lived in Utah <laughs> right. as an artist. And I did uh, a musical of Anne of Green Gables and um, uh, 1776, the Pirated Penzance that Jim Christian adapted. Did you um, walk into Guys the Grand and, and go... My friend was prophetic, and I have arrived. Like, <laughs> I don't think I actually even remembered it until a while later. Oh, fun! Uh, but you know, I did remember it. And I was like, "Oh yeah, that was true. I did. I did end up here, and I did practice. But of course, I didn't have to practice as much as a lot of other people because I was a dude, right? <laughs> and so they're like, "We need guys for our shows." Oh, and um, you sing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, I did a lot of work there, and the Grand Theater was uh, really um, formative to me and how I um, got involved in in the theater. And then it was shortly after that that I began studying music classically um, at the university and did a lot more in the opera. Though the first time I sang in the opera chorus was... Um, the Utah Opera Chorus here in Salt Lake was when I was just 18 years old. Oh, that seems young to me. Did they? Uh, it was very young. Okay. <laughs> so here's the story since we're doing storytelling. Um, I had a great friend uh, that I met uh, through the theater, actually, 
um, and she went to a different high school than me. And uh, at, right after we had graduated, um, I was at her grandmother's house doing some work because they always needed work done on their house and they had pity on me as being a poor boy from a poor family. He's um, just a poor boy from <laughs> a poor... Thank you. That was the reference. <laughs> um, so I was in her house um, painting the house. They always hired me when they needed painting done. And there was this other guy who just graduated with my friend who was ripping up carpet. And uh, my friend uh, said, oh, this is Luke. Um, and I'm like, oh, okay. Luke also does manual labor like me. Um, <laughs> and, she, uh, and my friend said, he's going to be singing with the Utah Opera Chorus this next season. And I was <laughs> like, ain't nobody going to be out doing me. <laughs> so I said, do they need more tenors? And he's like, I don't know. So I looked up their phone number in the phone book and uh, called him up and said... This is back in the day when there, when were, there phone were phone books. books. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> there was no internet at this point. This was 1997. Um, <laughs> and uh, I just called up and was like, do you guys need more tenors for your chorus? I'm like, well, we'll, we'll you know, I'll leave a message, because that's what we did back then, for the chorus master. And uh, they brought me in. I sang the one Italian art song that I knew that I had sung for solo and ensemble in sure. high school. Um, and I brought it in thinking it was such a great piece. And I set it down on the piano and, uh, and the pianist there, who I learned to know at the university very well years later, he said, ah, Vittoria, Vittoria, mio core. Uh, and I said, oh, do you know this song? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the course master and the pianist just laughed their heads off like, oh, this inexperienced kid who knows nothing, <laughs> which was true. Um, but then I sang a couple of shows, um, for them and I went away for a long time after that but uh, that was the first time I got to do it and really that was the first opera I had ever seen was from backstage you know and on stage you hadn't you hadn't seen I'd one until you were in an one. opera so the very first opera I'd ever seen was from on stage Lucia di Lammermoor by Gaetano Donizetti um what is the what is the basic story for um those of us that have no okay. idea what you just said. Lucia, uh, Lucia de Lammermoor is based on a novel by Walter Scott called Lucy of Lammermoor. Oh. So, yeah, it takes place in Scotland, which explains why it's sung in Italian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we do this all the time. People are all the time saying, why is that in Italian? That's so weird. And I'm like, oh, you're wondering why Romeo and Juliet is sung in French here? Oh, because it takes place in Italy. And we always do it in English when it's a play. So don't freak out. <laughs> we, we do this all yes, the time. We really do. We switch around languages and we think it's normal because everything revolves around English. Right. <laughs> so it's only it's only strange if the content we're watching is set somewhere else and it doesn't match the foreign language that we're hearing right. it in. But if it's in English, then it's fine that this oh, takes yes, place in Zimbabwe or Bangladesh. English, or, right? yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, so Lucita Lammermoor, there's this girl falls in love with a guy. This is opera. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but she's fallen in love with... Oh, gosh, this is like every story. She's fallen in love with someone who's from the wrong clan, right? Because this is in Scotland. You're supposed to yes. do all these political alliances with the marriages. So Luce, Lucia's brother, Enrico, or Henry in, in the novel, is like, you can't marry that... Edgar, Edgardo in the opera, because you're supposed to marry Arturo of the Bucklaw clan so that we can have all these politically advantageous things. 
Um, and so he makes her sister Lucia marry Arturo. And then she goes nuts, literally nuts, on their wedding night and stabs him to death. And so she comes down the <gasps> I stairs. I love opera. Yeah. <laughs> and her, her wedding dress is covered in blood. Oh, and excellent. She- it's so gory. My mother hated it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she sings this aria, her mad aria, which is um, like an iconic um, scene in opera, Lucia's um, mad aria. And I, I love this image I have in my head right now of your mother seeing um, on the cusp of adulthood you. I mean, like, my son is in an opera. And then and she sits down in the Utah Opera House and all this crazy stuff starts to go down. And she begins to question your life choices. <laughs> but you're on stage in an opera. So really, how far afield right, from the, the good right. path have you uh-huh. gone? Yeah, and I just think that's like hilarious. I'm there when someone legit did stab someone to death. No, this is just opera. Yeah. <laughs> this is the fun way that we tell these awful stories, not by, like, living them, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, Lucia, um, she dies of being crazy, because that's what happens, you know. Um, and then uh, Edgardo, uh, he kills himself. So that's the way it ends. Happy, happy story. Yeah, lots of death after romance. Uh-huh. But, yeah, that's opera. Yeah, it really is. Um, and we can talk about some of the, I bet you're interested in like, ha- in talking about story in opera. Yes, yeah. definitely. So I, instead of my just rambling on about that, I want you to ask me questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like I should story. interview you now. Because yeah. um, as you know, I can just go on and on and on forever <laughs> and ever and ever. What I, what I think is interesting is that you've said that the two formative performances that you had right were snippets of once upon a mattress Mm -hmm. and then Camelot at the grand and your first experience with opera is this crazy intense bloody insane story these are three very different stories that you've connected in like your story genesis of how you became a professional Uh. do you think that do you think that there is a parallel in the music situation of your life and how you formed as an artist? Because it seems like you, you've you kind of created for yourself a career around musical storytelling of a variety that's unanticipated. Wow, what an interesting question. So some, some of my earliest musical memories, I remember, so my dad was a computer programmer in the days when there were no computers, essentially. So we had really early computers in our house. So people who are my age will remember the Commodore 64. Yeah. Oh, uh, what a, an exciting thing that was when you had a 64-byte computer in your house. Maybe a 64 megabytes. I don't know. I just knew it, it was the Commodore 64. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and he had a program that was essentially music notation software. Um, so you could like write music in the computer. Yeah. And, uh, but it also had some pre-programmed things that you could listen to. And I remember hearing this piece of music that blew my mind in it. And the melody for it goes, It's Paco Bale's canon in D. Oh, But you heard it. I had never heard it. I'd never heard it before. And I heard it on a computer and I was like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And like one of my friends was over and I was like, you got to listen to this thing. And my friend was like, oh yeah, everybody knows that piece of music. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, dude. Yeah. I was like, oh, cool. I'm lame. Um, You know, other people I think were listening to a lot of like Bon Jovi 
and Michael Jackson at the time. And this piece of music just really spoke to me because just the beauty of the line and it's, and the complexity of, of the uh, polyphony or the, the moving lines that go through it. I, I didn't know why that was so beautiful to me at the time. And I didn't know that everybody now hates this piece of music because it's, it's overplayed so overdone. Or, yeah. But these things that, uh, that are overdone, often they're overdone because they're beautiful pieces of music. And just the craftsmanship of that piece is quite beautiful. To have that repeating bass line, that ostinato bass line that never goes away, and then to do a million beautiful things over the top of it. That's beautiful. I also, when I had joined my church choir... Um, you know, someone must have thought, oh, this kid has some talent, though um, it was not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he asked me, the choir director asked me to sing a solo for Easter. And so uh, it was just a little opening phrase of the piece that then the chorus uh, yeah. came in and joined in. The name of the tune was in Within the Shadow of the Cross. I remember the tune because I practiced it like 8 billion times and I was scared to death to sing it. How old are you at this time? I must have been 13, okay. 14 years old, something like that. So by then I was a tenor. You know, my voice yeah. changed. Although I wasn't really a tenor because I would just like sing the melody line an octave down because I couldn't find the tenor part. It was awful. 13-year-old <laughs> church choir tenor. <laughs> right. yeah. But uh, it made a significant impact on me to just get up in front of people and sing something. So so sound came out, it was yeah, the right sound, all it. the right words. I mean, the right sound. I'll make the quotation marks that the people won't be able to see on the podcast. Um, but <laughs> yeah, you know, I sang it. Um, it was very bad. And I listened to the recording of it afterward. And it was like, oh, that's not how you sing. But as we were talking about before you know, uh, the interview started, when we were doing some sound check, I heard my speaking voice back. And I'm like, barf. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone feels that way. You hear your own voice and you're like, this is disgusting. And every time I hear my own voice singing, I'm like, oh, my gosh, why does anyone ever listen to me sing? This is the worst sound in the universe. Um <laughs> Uh, but, uh, so I think the next moment of singing that was really formative for me, again, was a very, very different sort of thing. I was in, uh, junior high and I had this friend who I didn't realize at the time, but was a drug addict. Um, <laughs> I was very naive and I didn't know that he was doing drugs, but, um, we put together a little acapella group and for a talent show. And so there were like four of us dudes and one chick at one young lady I appropriately <laughs> said but we were dudes so she can be a chick right okay. yeah um and we sang acapella in the jungle um by the what yeah, is that um, uh, the four top no the what is the name of the group the Owema Way guys yeah 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 I can't not the four tops but the box tops is that it I don't I have remember. any idea anyway, <laughs> uh we sang it in a talent show it was really fun and I sang the all the really high parts in falsetto oh, of course of course because I could do it um it was uh, it was really really fun. We had a great time. This guy was like a good manager. He knew how to make things really theatrical, um, so that the audience would think that we were at least partially cool instead of beating us all up uh, after. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was a rush. It was really fun uh, to do it. And so I guess those were kind of my earliest musical memories. I remember once being outside doing some yard work. And I used to snobbishly want to listen to Classical 89 um, on the radio. And they were doing the Met broadcast of opera. And I remember that it was Rossini's Cenerentola, which is Cinderella. 
Um, and they're talking about all these really musical things and doing interviews with people. And I'm like, I have no idea what these people are talking about, but this seems like a cool way to tell a story. Um, and, uh, then I heard the opera and I was like, this is cool. This is cool. My radio sucks, but this is cool. And my mom came <laughs> out and I'm like, you like opera? And I'm like, no, I don't like opera. I'm just listening to this. <laughs> it's what it's what was on and my fingers are dirty over here so right, I didn't so turn I can't it change off it. And... I should be listening to Bon Jovi and Michael Jackson <laughs> <laughs> excuse me while I weep over Paco Bell's cannon read between 